This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Change is about compliance. Transformation or transition is about conviction. Hi, I'm Carl Vaders, and welcome to The Church Lobby, conversations on faith and ministry. My guest in this episode is Bud Brown. He's the author of Lifeless to New Life, Biblical Prayers to Resurrect the Lifeless Church. Bud and I talk about how to help the congregation become agents of life and hope in a dying church through the power of prayer. We also talk about why it's so important to bring the congregation along on this transformational journey, especially in small churches where the congregation has such a strong voice along with the will of the pastor and primarily along with the will of God. And we also talk about the importance of praying the evangelistic prayers of the New Testament. Don't forget to stick around when the interview is done. I'll come back with an overview of the content and some practical takeaways. Well, welcome, Bud. It is good to have you on the podcast today. Carl, thank you so much for the invitation. And uh, as I've been praying and thinking about our time together, my hope is that what we do is really something that's beneficial and helpful to your audience, to the people that are going to be listening to the podcast, because that's what we're here to do is to be of help. I know it will, because the book that we're going to be talking about, the book that you wrote, Lifeless to new life, biblical prayers to resurrect the lifeless church. Uh, I read it a little while ago and was really blessed by it. And I think there's some really good material in this for folks, and I hope folks will go to it and buy it as well as they're moving forward with this. I want to jump right into it because there's a lot of content. It's a short book, but there's a lot of content in it. Easy to read, right. mm-hmm. but a lot of very practical stuff to actually do. What I want to do my, for my first question is jump off of a quote that you had really early in, like page two, where you set up the premise for the book, you write this, revitalization isn't hard to understand, but it is hard to do, you say. And then you say that it rests on three essential components. And I love this because it looks very much like a Venn diagram that I put in my book, Small Church Essentials, and that I talk about with a lot of pastors, where the three components are one, a skilled pastor, two, a willing congregation, and three, Jesus' blessing. And then you tell us that this book centers on the second part, a willing congregation, which is what really caught my attention because for anybody who has been pastoring for a while and has read books on church revitalization, they almost exclusively, not exclusively, but almost exclusively and certainly primarily focus on the first one, which is the pastor skills. Pastor, Mm -hmm. here's how you can do this better. And of course, it's something we should know, but not as many focus on the second part, the willing congregation part. And my guess is because most of the books we read on church revitalization are written either by pastors of large churches or come from a big church standpoint. And so the skills of the pastor are a much higher factor 
than the willingness of the congregation, the bigger a church is. But the smaller mm-hmm. a church is, the more those two are co-equal. And in really small churches, the willingness of the congregation can, in fact, trump the skill of the pastor. Absolutely, a yes. A lot of times. So this is particularly helpful to smaller churches. With that in mind, how was it that you came to this uh, realization and enough interest in it to write a book that really centers on how do we as pastors help the congregation come towards a willingness for the kind of change that a church needs for revitalization? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the genesis of the, the book, the idea, grew out of 20 plus years of working with pastors, working with churches, serving as an intentional interim of churches that were between pastors. Also, at the same time, kind of surveying what other consultants, what other church growth people were saying out there. And then what I experienced was you can do all the right things. You can do the things that those that maybe are more experienced or have done more research or at least write more books have done tell us to do. But very oftentimes it will fall on deaf ears because the pastors, our seminary education, uh, what we learn by osmosis tends to view the church and the people in the church as objects to be rearranged on a chessboard or like pieces on a checkerboard. They're just inanimate objects that will automatically respond to the preaching of the word. Parenthetically, when I graduated from seminary, kind of the message that we got back in the 80s was preach it and they will come as though Mm -hmm. good expository preaching were in itself sufficient to cause the church to grow. So all that to say that the idea grew out of disappointment with the fact that much of what I found written in books and my colleagues found written in books doesn't work until you take the spiritual, the systems dynamics of the church and the congregation into account. Add to that that during my time as an intentional interim pastor going from you know, church to church and helping them prepare for their next settled pastor, I came to realize, and I hope this doesn't come across as harsh, I I intended to be a little bit humorous with an element of truth, is that that most churches are dysfunctional families. Mm -hmm. And until you address the dysfunction, you're not going to pave the way for the church to become healthy and and to grow. So, The church has to be willing, and it's the pastor's job to get the church to the place where they're willing. That's how I see it. So, Gotcha. I like that definition because we often say the church is a family, and scripturally, that obviously is true. But I think adding the word dysfunctional helps people clarify their expectations. Right, yes. (laughs) Right. Because that, that, that's a little bit more of what we run into when we think it's a family, like everything's going to be awesome. And then you pause and go, well, take a look at your family. Does it always work perfectly? No, we're kind of we're kind of a mess at times. Well, the church too. So I think that, yeah, that clearly. Right, absolutely. And so, yeah. uh, you know, the factors that feed into or create a church that is unwilling to embrace change are m- multiple and manifold. But generally speaking, what in my experience what I found is that uh, several factors tend to be prominent. Number one, the church itself has, has, has a history of 
pastors who don't fully understand what their role as the pastor is, which is to prepare the church to move to the place that God intends it to be. Uh, you go to that Ephesians 4 passage where we are called to equip the saints. I mean, that means that we're there to repair what's broken. We're there to repair what's or replace what's missing. And uh, also at times, and somewhat more painful, we're there to remove what's not working yet sucks up all of our resources. So uh, the unwillingness isn't simply because people are hard-hearted and cold and indifferent to the things of the Lord. You will find a few of those people here and there, but I think largely the churches are unwilling because they have not been properly taught or trained what the church's role in the mission of God and what the individual member's role is in the mission of the church. So right. probably a broad generalization, but I think that that covers most of the cases. Yeah, I agree with that. I, and again, the, the, the approach you take in the book, first of all, as we've established, you're addressing uh, how to help the congregation become more willing to move towards revitalization that's needed. And mm -hmm. then you talk about the strategy. And uh, again, I'm going to quote you from it. The strategy is simple. You say, get people in plateau churches to pray the evangelistic prayers of the New Testament. Yep. It sounds simple to the point of simplistic. So how can it be that simple? I Obviously, you break it out in the rest of the book, but let's start with that is when I first read it, that was, I, I paused at that point because I thought that is, that is almost overly simplified. And yet, obviously, it's not. So walk mm -hmm. us through that. How is it that praying the evangelistic prayers of the New Testament can be the, the answer to what ails us? Is that really what you're saying? And if so, how? Well, I, I wish that it was a panacea to everything that ails us. But specifically, what I'm addressing is how do you move it? A, a church that is inward focused and that is preoccupied with its own needs or the, the needs and the care of the congregation and to begin to shift out to the world and to see what God sees so that their heart begins to long for the things that God longs for, which includes seeing people one. So uh, is it simple uh, in theory, yeah. In execution, it's much more difficult because yeah. you're you're battling against a whole lot of factors that have to be dealt with. But I think that you can build a case right from the teachings of Christ himself. And I'm thinking of the passage in Matthew 9, chapter 9, verses 37, 38, where we're told to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send in more harvesters. Then immediately in the next chapter, in chapter 10, Jesus then calls his disciples to himself and deploys them on gospel preaching mission to go out into the countrysides and the villages where Jesus himself is going to go. So I think that that establishes the principle that prayer precedes the call and the entrance into ministry. And it when we pray in that fashion, we're exposing ourselves not only to the word of God, but we're exposing ourselves to the Holy Spirit in prayer who changes our hearts slowly and over a period of time. And when we begin to see small answers to those prayers, something as simple as um, an unexpected conversation that takes a spiritual direction 
with somebody that you once thought had no spiritual interest whatsoever. When we begin to see little, small, I call them green shoots, uh, answers to our prayers, that does something in us. And we begin to recognize that when we are in prayer, we are actually partnering with God who is on mission mm -hmm. to fulfill his promise, promise to Abraham that people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every ethnic group is on his heart and he wants to rescue them. So I think that uh, on the surface, yeah, I think you're right, Carl. It's it's simple, but once you get behind the scenes and begin to examine what happens when we pray and how these prayers are manifest in the New Testament, there's much more depth there than we realize. So maybe instead of looking at it as being overly simple or simplistic, it's more like a, a, a pool of water that has the sky and the clouds and the sunlight reflecting on it. And when you step into it, you don't know how deep it is. But when you jump in, all of a sudden, you know, you're up to your armpits in the water. It's a lot deeper mm -hmm. than than what it looks like. So, yeah, you point this out so well in the book, book over and over again, how often prayer is the first priority and quite often even the first word in Christ's command to us to go and evangelize. The mm -hmm. passage you just mentioned, pray the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest field. Mm -hmm. I, I have heard that my entire life. And somehow I've filtered that passage, pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send workers into the harvest field. I filtered that into my own brain as find workers for the harvest field or go into the harvest field. In my brain, I skip over the first word. Yeah. He's not just saying send laborers. He's not saying find laborers. He's not even saying train laborers. He's saying first word. So first priority, pray. <laughs> right. Yep. Make your prayers that God will send people into the. And then as, as I read that and read through the book, the number of times that you show us prayer is first word and often first priority. Why is it that we are, we so quickly want to diminish the value of, or quite frankly, in our minds, sometimes just skip right over prayer and get to strategy. What is it about prayer that we devalue so much? Oh, wow. That's a great question. And I and I wrestle with that a lot myself as well. I think that part of the answer to your question has to do with how, how has God hardwired us as persons? You know, some of us just want to get in, we see a problem, we want to come up with a solution, we want to get people ready to roll and uh, tackle that problem, then move on to the next one. So some of us, our first reaction to any problem is to jump in and solve that problem. And that happens, that's that's what I am. That's what I was before I got saved, when I was in the business world. And even as a pastor, I, my mind is immediately thinking, okay, what can we do to solve this problem? What can I do to organize us and get this thing going? And I lose the fact that, wait a minute, this is Jesus's work. It's not mine. I'm just here to help him. I kind of lose that spiritual perspective at times. Uh, and then I think perhaps I'm a little bit guarded in this observation, but I think there's some element to it that very often by virtue of our training, we come to think we are sufficient for all problems that come up in the church. And it takes, mm. uh, you know, I'm a slow learner. It took me about 10 years after seminary to recognize, wait a minute, in seminary, they only taught you about 
15% of what I needed to know in order to pastor a church well. So, so I think it's partly training. I think it might be partly personality. And then we as Americans tend to be very pragmatic. What we're interested in knowing, first of all, is not what's good and what's true. The first thing we're interested in knowing is what works. And right. so I think there's probably a number of factors in that and plenty of opportunity for us to repent of that of that error. Yeah. If we're talking about, okay, what works, as you point out, Jesus actually promised that he would answer our prayers if we pray for f fruitful evangelistic ministry. Yeah. So it's it's kind of like going for a home loan. And if you're, if you're pre-approved before you go in, then you can just, you've got a, a much freer search because you know you're going to get such amount of money uh, mm -hmm. if you're actually pre-approved. And imagine going into our prayers and knowing there are certain prayers that Jesus pre-approves. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Why not start with the thing that has already been pre-approved, guaranteed by Jesus, he will answer our prayers for fruitful and effective ministry. Three times in the upper room discourse, John 15, 16, and 17, or excuse me, 14, 15, 16, 17, he promises that he will ask uh, whatever we ask the Father in his name will be answered, will be given, mm -hmm. will be done unto us. And in the upper room discourse, uh, when you look at the literary and the theological structure of that text, that entire episode from chapter 13 through chapter 17, Jesus is preparing his friends, his disciples for mission. I haven't found any place else in the Bible outside of those three instances in a context of people going on mission for Jesus where you have the absolute prayer, anything you ask, I will do it for you. There is, you know, possibly a, a, a oblique reference when Jesus says, if you have faith, you can command this mountain to be cast into the sea, which is obviously a form of hyperbole. But that prayer is, uh, as you said, a pre-approved prayer three times in the upper room as he's getting his disciples ready to go out to the field to carry the gospel of Christ out there. So I think it's a, yeah, a, yeah, it's an amazing promise and one that uh, I spent too many years not giving its full weight and consideration to. Yeah. Let's be purposeful about what you're purposeful about in the book, which is, so this mm -hmm. is not just a conversation about praying. It's about helping the congregation become praying people. Yeah. So we're talking to pastors, not congregation members primarily. So let's talk to the pastors out there. If you would for me, talk to the pastors about there. What are, why is it important for us to turn our, to help our congregation become prayers about this? And what are some of the steps that we can take to help our congregation, first of all, recognize the value of praying for church revitalization in their own life? And how do we help get them start getting to those places? Because it's not just about pastoral prayer that matters, but you're really pushing towards, let's turn our people into praying people towards this right. as the essential first step towards church revitalization. So how do we start doing that? Well, um, to start off, uh, answer the first part of your inquiry there, uh, one of the reasons why it's important for us to get our church members to do this in my experience, it's been a vital step to help that congregation uh, make the move from the unwilling to the willing category. Mm -hmm. So a second reason why it's important is that 
it's an it's a basic discipleship uh, process, uh, which uh, the pastor is responsible for the spiritual maturation of the body of of the church as well as the individuals. So it's on us to help them to adopt or to regularly engage in the kinds of spiritual disciplines that will help them to mature in Christ. And prayer is probably at the top of those spiritual disciplines. So I think those are two crucial reasons why, to get us moving and to get our hearts aligned with God. And then as far as how you go about doing that, uh, in part, that's going to depend contextually on what each pastor is dealing with uniquely in the congregation where that pastor is currently serving. But some of the things that I have seen that have worked well, uh, that other pastors who've taken this material that I've taught them have used, a, a sermon series, preaching over a, a protracted period of time on the role of prayer in the life of the believer and in the life of the ministry. I have seen pastors that have called aside a select small group of people, church leaders typically, for a prayer retreat where they may spend you know, a day and a half where the pastor leads these church leaders through these prayers and actually engages in the prayer and teaches the theology that's involved in the book, and then ask them to go back and model this for the congregation and to do this in their small groups. So the small groups is another way to go about doing that, discipling your small group leaders, your church leaders. Uh, a third way that I've seen uh, a friend of my close friend of mine has done on more than one occasion over the course of years is he will call the church to a week of 24-7 prayer. A little bit larger church, about two to 300 people, but they will schedule out an entire seven-day period in 30-minute segments, and then they will have people agree they're going to get up and uh, at a certain time of the day, certain day of the week, and they're going to pray through some of these specific prayers. That's a good way to get a turbo boost and get things going. Yeah. yeah. So those are some of the techniques that I've seen that have been effective. Some other pastors have gotten hold of the book and called me and said, man, I'm going to do this in their church, uh, in my church, and I'm waiting to hear back from them. Did it work or not? And uh, what did you do that you think worked well? So still gathering some more information sure. on that. But yeah, so we've seen that. Yeah, but I mean, the bottom line is obviously a more prayerful church is going to be a more willing church to receive uh, the life that God, that Jesus wants to bring into his church. And, and you, you can't lose with a church that's praying more. Right. And and you even talk about how prayer is really essential to preparing the soil to receive a fresh vision. This is also something that connected with me because I talk about that a lot, that in a lot of our churches, we don't have a mission problem as much as we have a culture problem, a problem with the soil not being willing to receive the seed. So yeah. how important and how much does prayer contribute to the necessary soil or culture change that a lot of our churches need? Absolutely. And in that regard, I, I think you can go back and look in church history at the revivals that have occurred over the course of time. And I think you can plausibly argue that each and every one of them started in a prayer meeting. I mean, even mm -hmm. in the book of Acts, chapter one, where did the yeah. first great outbreak begin? It's when they were gathered in the upper room and began to pray, and boom, the church exploded. Peter and John get in trouble with the law. They all come back together. They pray. 
together and boom, another massive explosion. You know, the first great awakening in America, the second great awakening, the great prayer revivals. They started with people getting together to pray and seeking God's blessing on themselves and on the people that they know. Yeah, that's unarguably true. I, I love that emphasis. And now a short break to talk about something else. If you like the content you're hearing, here are two things you can do for us. First, forward this podcast to a friend. Second, consider becoming a financial supporter through Patreon, Venmo, or PayPal. Just go to carlvaders.com support. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us put these resources into the hands of the ministries that need them the most. Our support link is in the show notes. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. You also talk about that there's a difference between change and transition. We often use those as synonyms, but you right. talk about how a transition actually goes much deeper. You even include some neurobiological issues, which is always fascinating to me. So can you walk us through some of the differences between change and transition and why it matters? Right. In the book, I refer to change as being primarily behavioral. As the pastor, we say, you know, I want us as a church to do this, that, or the other thing. And a percentage of the people will make those changes that go along with them. And as long as the pastor is there to kind of keep his hand on the wheel and make sure that they don't run off into the ditch, those changes are good to go. But they are not deep internal changes in how we think and how we see the world. Those are transitions or transformations. So a transformation is a fundamental change in worldview or a fundamental adaptation or um, revivification of biblical values that then produce the change in behavior that we're looking for. This was really driven home to me. My first church, I pastored a church in uh, uh, the Southwest for five years The people were willing to go through some of the changes that are requested. You know, we changed uh, some of the ways that we conducted our worship services, added a little bit more updated instruments. Uh, We added a few elements to the prayer service to make it a little bit more engaging and attractive to the people and church themselves. And they went along with all those changes. It was great. They were happy to do that. But when I left... And the next pastor came along. Uh, it wasn't hardly any time at all, and all of those changes were undone. Yeah, they were undone because I had not done the deeper work of explaining to the people why these changes were necessary in order for them to be effective in reaching their local community. That led me into some research about what is it that makes lasting change happen in people's lives, and I realized. 
it's not simply getting them to change how they behave, but it get, it's getting them to change how they think and how they feel. That's what transformation yeah. is all about. Yeah. And we often concentrate on the, on the surface change, on the methods, on the programs, on a new, a, a new worship style or whatever. And mm-hmm. I think maybe because they're easier and because they're so visible, you can see the change happening. But right. so many of us, I don't know of any pastor who's been in pastoring any length of time who can't point out several churches that they know of, perhaps churches that they've pastored, where it looked like everything had changed and the transition happened. And then a pastor leaves and a new one comes in or some other thing happens. And next thing you know, they've all fallen back into the bad habits right. again. There was no actual transformation that took place in the church. It was all just surface adjustments. Right. I don't remember if I uh, used this metaphor in the book or not, but the difference is, is compliance on the one hand and conviction on the other. Mm-hmm. Change is about compliance. Transformation or transition is about conviction. They own those values. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you do make a reference to first order changes and second order changes. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between those and why do they matter? Well, first order change could be considered to be things that are behavioral, things that are seen on the surface, things that we observe from a distance. Second order change oftentimes are not seen directly because they are internal, their mental processes, way of thinking and values that are deep, that are lasting and permanent. Yeah. So that's that's yeah. that's kind of the Reader's Digest version. Yeah. And again, prayer, when it truly is prayer and not just simply repeating words, goes deep to that heart of that transformation. You know, Absolutely. That's, that's why when we start there and with the prayers that Jesus told us to pray, that really makes a difference. And when we're done with this, we'll do a bonus chat. So if you want the bonus chat, if you go to carlbaders.com, slash uh, support and you support us on Patreon, you will get these bonus chats, a key to that. Or you can do it for free by going to carlbaders.com slash subscribe, and then you get the weekly newsletter. And in that is the code for you to go to YouTube to these bonus chats. And so what we'll do in the bonus chat is I want to talk about the eight prayers that we need for church revitalization in the middle, middle, and actually middle to towards the end of the book, you actually take eight chapters to go through eight steps. And I'm going to give everybody the quick overview of it. But in the bonus chat, I'm going to ask you about each one of these. We're going to to talk about that we need to pray for laborers, pray Mm -hmm. for open doors, pray for eyes to see, pray for wise words, pray for boldness, pray for people by name, and pray for conversions. And you show how these are biblical prayers that Jesus tells us to pray. And that if we do these, we can see how it's going to be not just train, change, but actual transition and actual transformation. So mm-hmm. for those of you who do want to do that, carlbaders.com slash subscribe or slash support will put you on the list and you'll get the information you can go and you can get the bonus content. But before we go into the bonus content, which folks can get later, and even before we get to the lightning round, I do want to come in with the way you close the book. You end with some very, very practical steps for pastors to help get these changes started in their congregation. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you start by saying that churches have old habits that need to be replaced with new ones. So what are some of those old habits? What are the new habits we need to take and how do we help them transition from one to the other? Well, uh, one old habit that may need to be visited and changed or modified, we no longer do prayer meetings because it's inconvenient. Uh, You know, Mm. back in the 
60s, 70s, 80s, when I was coming up in ministry, Wednesday night prayer meeting was a given yeah. and uh, yeah. everybody was was deeply involved. As a matter of fact, if I could just do a brief little sidetrack sure. on that issue. When uh, my wife and I got saved, we were attending a, a small Baptist church here in Arizona, and the pastor made a statement in one of his sermons, and that is Christian people get together and they pray for the work of the Lord. So being new, we didn't realize that Christian people getting to pray together to pray meant that uh, you go to church on Wednesday night and you have a 15-minute devotional and a 10-minute prayer. Mm. So what we did, uh, not knowing any better, we got together some friends that had gotten uh, baptized at the same time we had and five or six other people. We gathered at our house and we said, great, we're going to have our prayer meeting. We all looked at each other. Well, what do we do? So <laughs> <laughs> seriously, Carl. Yeah. So we we got out the uh, yellow legal pads and we started sharing prayer requests. So we had a couple of pages of prayer requests. And then we broke to, up together in twos. Some sat in chairs, some laid on the floor. And we started praying. And, and our first prayer meeting went for like two hours. Mm. And we, we did that every week. And sometimes they were maybe an hour, other times, you know, three hours or longer. And it surprised the heck out of us as new believers because God actually began answering prayers. So one of the habits that we need to break is what we think of a prayer, what I think a prayer meeting consists of. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. If your your church or the people that are listening, you have prayer meetings on Wednesday nights, fantastic. Don't stop that, but make it a genuine prayer meeting. So I think that's one thing that has to change. Another thing, another habit that I think needs to change is that of low expectations when it comes to prayer meetings. Now, pastors, I think, rightfully expect their church leaders, whether they're elders or deacons or whatever, to um, actually engage in the ministry of church leadership. Pastors rightfully expect faithful church members to show up for the meetings of the church on Sunday for worship and fellowship and all that. But the expectations for people to pray are minuscule. Yeah. We are so readily forgive or we don't hold people accountable for their prayer lives. And that's a habit that we've fallen into. And I think it's something that needs to change. I think another habit that needs to change in this regard is that when we gather to pray, typically all of the prayers focus on our own personal needs or the needs of family members. Um, my daughter's co-worker has a daughter who is in labor and uh, is struggling mightily and the child may be in danger. So we all quick get together to pray for that. Or we may pray for, you know, my wife has been going through some tests recently, some concerns about whether she might have some a form of blood cancer. Doesn't look like she does, thankfully, but those kinds of things are important, but they become the center and the focus of our prayers, yeah. which feeds into a, an overall mindset that needs to change. And that is in each believer's life, he or she thinks he or she is the center of what God is doing in the universe. And we need to change that habit of thinking 
God is not here for my benefit. The church is not here for my benefit. The church is here for the benefit of the world to help God fulfill his mission. And I'm here to help the church be obedient to God. And, and when we change that habit of thinking in, in our prayers, suddenly our prayers take on a much larger cosmic orientation that's focused on seeing God act in the world in a way that redeems people and glorifies his son, Jesus Christ. So there's yeah. habits of behavior, there's habits Beautiful. of low expectation, habits of thinking that need to all change. Yeah, and, and prayer is an absolute key to all of that. I, I completely mm -hmm. agree. Last question before the lightning round, I'm going to get into okay. a, a little bit of potential controversy here for some folks. Sure. You write, when it comes to prayer, it is a slower process. The kind of change you're talking about is not instantaneous. It's about transformation, and it's a slower process. And then you write, pastors who relish thinking big thoughts, who preach big ideas, or who are inclined to take direct action will struggle with this, that those yes. pastors will struggle with the long-term approach, and yep. especially they'll struggle when inevitably a certain amount of momentum wanes and you've got to push through yep. those times to the other side of that. Mm -hmm. But almost all of the revitalization stuff that most of us read takes exactly the opposite approach. And it urges us to think big thoughts, preach big ideas, take direct action, and you're saying that pastors who have that approach are going to have some real struggle with this long-term approach. So mm -hmm. walk us through some of that and why this change of thinking is so important. Sure. I approach the question and, and I view the terms from the perspective of the Berkman profile. Uh, it's not nothing that we want to get into here, but the Berkman personality profile is a tool that, that my colleagues and I have used in all of our research. In, in the Berkman profile, we identify people in four broad categories. Uh, one broad category is the doer, the guy that likes to roll up his sleeves, gets things done, organized, like we talked about earlier in our, in our conversation. And we want to see things happen. And when things don't happen, our first response is mid-course correction. Okay, what have I missed? What did I overlook? Who's not doing their job? What went wrong? And, and so those people like that, the doers, tend to become very impatient when they can't see regular progress. The big thinker guys, those are the guys that like to delve deeply into theology, psychology, cultures, worldview, whatever the case may be. And they foresee the future. They think big thoughts. They have big plans about the future, but they get bored with the day in, day out, put one foot in front of the other, keep the process going, part of the process that is required to execute a long-term strategy. And so speaking about myself for example, I'll use myself as a bad example because I fall into both camps. Once I have a plan up and running, once I figure out how to solve a problem, I immediately get bored. I want to give it to somebody else and I want to go do something else. Okay. I, I don't consider myself a scholar, but I read extensively. And in my own uh, juvenile way, I think deep thoughts. 
So once I've settled on an issue, once I've come to a conclusion about something, I'm ready to move on to the next thing. But one of the things that pastors have to have is what's called a high insistence score, where they steadfastly follow day in, day out. They keep that plan going. So probably, I'm guessing, 75% of the pastors are not equipped with that hard insistence component that they need to follow the plan doggedly while they're waiting for the seed to germinate and they're starting before they see those green shoots. Basically, three quarters of us aren't wired to naturally have the patience to take the long-term approach and to stick with it when our and the congregation's enthusiasm goes a little bit low. If we're not wired for that, then how do we get through those times? What, what's the solution to it? Perhaps it's a mentor that can uh, help them work through that. I've got several pastors that I'm coaching right now. Uh, a common refrain that I hear from guys that have been in it, into their new ministry, new pulpit for a couple of years and things aren't going the way they want is, I wonder if I made a mistake coming here. Mm -hmm. Am I the right guy for this place? Do I have what it takes to see this through? So I have to kind of take a little bit of the tough love approach and say, well, what does 1 Peter 2.21 say? It says, have the same mindset Christ did. He suffered. If you're following him, you're going to suffer. And in your case, the suffering is motoring through and, and keeping at it faithfully day in and day out, even when you're not getting the kind of feel-good attaboy feedback that you expect to see from progress. So that's, yeah. you know, that's part of it. Uh, well, I'll stop there because there, I think that that's getting a coach or a mentor or if you have a, a colleague in town or maybe somewhere else in the country, a peer that knows you well, that uh, that you trust, that will speak truth into your life. Somebody that we're going to that will say to you, don't be foolish. Don't be childish. Did you think that, you know, to kind of paraphrase Eugene Peterson, pastoral ministry was other anything other then suffering for a long time in the same direction? <laughs> or did you get the idea you were that you had a different gig? Because this is what right. it is. So yeah, yeah having absolutely. people around you that will help you, I think, will go a long way. And to be able to voice those frustrations very oftentimes will help at least for a period of time kind of yeah. lower that internal pressure. So yeah, self-acknowledgement is a huge part of it. And an acknowledgement that sometimes slow and these up and downs in ups and downs in enthusiasm uh, as a normal part of life. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes we think that just the fact that it's slowing down or the fact that we're losing enthusiasm, we think something's wrong and it isn't necessarily wrong. It's just mm -hmm. a part of the process. Well, let's jump to the lightning round. Speaking of fast or slow, let's jump into the fast here at the end. We've got some lightning sure. round questions for you. All right. What are the biggest changes you've seen in your field of ministry in the last few years and how have you adapted to it? You know, I've uh, thought about that question quite a bit because, uh, you, you know, you emailed me, warned me that this one was coming. <laughs> In the last five years or so, I would say that there are two major movements going on within uh, evangelical Christianity that have direct impact on what pastors are experiencing and especially what churches are experiencing. And the first one is this broad move that's picking up steam towards the bivocational model of church ministry. 
Some yeah. pastors are doing it out of choice because they want the marketplace ministry opportunities. Others are doing it out of necessity because they're in congregations that can't afford to pay them a living wage. And as you can well imagine, this creates tremendous problems for the pastors because the reality is there are no part-time pastors. <laughs> yeah. You may be getting part-time pay, but you're still doing yeah. part-time work. And the yeah. congregation does not understand that that employer, the employer is the one that's helping you to put beans and tortillas on the table for your family. The, the employer comes first because that's the one that's keeping your family afloat. In terms of what Turnaround Pastors has been doing to uh, address this, a couple of things. One of them is uh, we, several years ago, started uh, talking about and we've begun implementing changes to our training model before COVID really uh, slammed into us and kind of set everybody upside down. Our training model consisted of 40-hour immersion boot camps, we called them, where we would get pastors away to a conference center or a, you know, someplace where there are no, no phones, uh, hopefully no, no uh, Wi-Fi service. And it was from right after breakfast and to right up until dinner time at 6. It's classroom work. It's uh, breakout sessions working on individual projects. And they went away. They had the beginning of a complete understanding of what they needed to do as pastors. They had they went away with understanding what they needed to do in the church, and they had the beginning of an effective strategic model that would carry them forward for several years. Yeah. Well, that's not practical for bivocational pastors. So we've gone to a new model. Our next session actually starts here in a couple of weeks where on Monday nights for four hours for six consecutive weeks in a video setting like this, we lead them through the training. We have guest speakers come in or some of our own staff will come in and do the training. And then in between weeks, they'll have an, uh, an assignment that they need to do that will help them consolidate their learning. And then we follow that up with a one-year cohort group where Two or three people that went through the boot camp training, online boot camp training together will meet. They'll review the videos. They'll talk about what they've learned. And then we also offer a, uh, a mentorship program where they'll meet with uh, one of our staff members one-on-one uh, -on -one for an hour a month. And then we're, we're stocking our Evergreen Library. We've still got a lot of work to do, but make all this available online so that uh, those that can't make those Monday night training sessions can do time shifting and and watch it and and do the work at their own pace and their own speed. Yeah, yeah that's great. The, the bivocational even, even uh, it's changing enough that we're actually creating new terms like co-vocational for those who are choosing to do so intentionally. It, that's all available at turnaroundpastor.com. Is that where that people could go to find that? Yeah. Um, on our webpage, uh, if they go there, they'll see, um, you know, the training opportunities that we have to offer. And then when they come up, we push them up through social media channels as well. And Got it. in our, in our newsletter. Yeah. And we'll put that uh, all, all those links in the show notes. Uh, so second question, what free resource like an app or a website has helped you lately that you'd recommend for small church ministry? To be honest with this question, I have to say, that I have not been a settled pastor in a small church or a large church for um, 20 years now. 
So I've been a church consultant. I've been a trainer. I've taught some seminary classes and what have you. So I think in order to be fair to your audience, I need to, to uh, answer them what I find helpful to me now. And, and, and hopefully that'll be of some use to them. Uh, the first thing that I have found to be extremely helpful in my study and in my research is this, a pen and a piece of paper or a notebook. Mm. I deliberately, although I have, and I think my online library with Lagos Research is like 5,000 volumes. <laughs> uh, I have gone to getting books that I no longer own through interlibrary loan. And then I sit down with them and I've got, as a matter of fact, here is uh, right now I'm working through my uh, study on a, on a book by a Lutheran theologian on justification. And I found that by moving away from typing everything in a keyboard and cutting and pasting out of a program, by writing slowly and reflectively, I understand it better and I recall it better. The other thing that I do quite a bit is I listen to podcasts from people that are from different theological schools of thought than my own. Because I find okay. if you can find a podcast that uh, I, I happen to prefer podcasts that are basically exegetical discussions through the Bible, 20 to 30 minutes will really help me to open up my eyes and see things that I've missed or reevaluate conclusions that I've held without reconsidering. And then one podcast in particular, I, I think helps me to speak more clearly and articulately to the culture, and I think will help small church pastors, is one called The Genius of Thomas Sowell. Thomas Sowell was, is a, a well-known economist. He's published right. like 70 books. And in the podcast, what they do is they tease out how Thomas Sowell thinks, how he formulates the way that he speaks to the world. And I have found it to be very refreshing to help me move away from geek theology speak and <laughs> speak in plain, simple language like I do in the book that we're, we're talking about here. Uh, to me, it's just wonderfully refreshing to be able to take extremely complex ideas and communicate them simply to people because that's what they yeah. need. And the Thomas Soul podcast has helped me with that. We'll we'll make sure we put the links to those in the show notes as well. Mm -hmm. Third question in the lightning round here: What's the best piece of ministry advice you've ever received? Oh, wonderful! Uh, when I was finishing up my final year at Dallas Seminary, uh, at that time everybody had to go through a I guess you'd call it a mock-up ordination council, where two professors would come in and they'd run you through what you're going to run into in the typical ordination council in the church. And uh, in the course of that, one of the professors, Bob Salstrom, uh, professor at Dallas Seminary, said, settle in for the long haul by taking care of your family and your health. There is no glory to burning out early in ministry. And I haven't always been 100% um, following Bob's advice, but by and large, I've really tried to protect uh, my family, my health, so even though we had four kids, all PKs, uh, they all turned out pretty well. And at uh, 75 years of age, by the grace of God, I'm still going strong. So that's great. No, that's great advice. Absolutely. So what's the funniest or weirdest thing you've ever seen in church? 
That would be the day that Lucky the Rescue Dog walked the aisle and got saved. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, we were living in a, a church parsonage uh, on the property of a church in Sedona, Arizona, where I pastored for eight years. And in Sedona, the altitude's a little bit higher, so you can leave the doors open during the summer mornings, you know, enjoy the nice cool air. So somebody decided to leave the, the, the front doors to the church wide open, and then the doors from the narthex into the auditorium wide open. So I'm wrapping up my sermon, I'm, I'm preaching my sermon, and getting ready to close with an invitation of sorts. And right at that moment, our, a, a stray rescue dog that we had gotten for our kids several years earlier, Lucky was her name, comes walking right down the middle of the aisle, right up to the platform and sits right in front of me. And that was the end of the service. Yeah. And my, my four children still get a laugh out of that moment when we get wow. together and it comes up. Yeah. Yeah, that'll do it. That's great. <laughs> so the book again for our readers is Lifeless to New Life, Biblical Prayers to Resurrect the Lifeless Church. I highly recommend that you get it, especially if you're in a church that's struggling and really needs some uh, renewal mm. uh, and some new life in it. Uh, if people do want to follow up with you, Bud, how can they find you online? Bud at BudBrown.net is my personal email address. And turnaroundpastor.com is our website. Great. And just, just so people are aware, again, I mentioned this in the pre-roll, but uh, Bud Brown, Laverne E. Brown is the actual name on the book. And if you're looking for it in, on Amazon, if you go Bud Brown on Amazon, you probably won't find the book. So right. Laverne E. Brown on Amazon, or as he mentioned, his own uh, website and email address that you can find him there. Bud, thank you so much for your wisdom today. For those thank of you, you who do want the additional information in the, in the bonus segment that we're about to record, go to carlvaders.com slash support or carlvaders.com slash subscribe, and you can watch the bonus information that we're about to do on YouTube. Thanks, Bud. Sure appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. God bless you guys. There are so many books out there about how to turn a lifeless church around. Sometimes I feel like I've read all of them, although I'm not even close. I know that. But what I have discovered is that most of these books concentrate on the role of the pastor in church revitalization, which, of course, is extremely important. But the role of the congregation members often gets forgotten, and that's what Bud addresses so well in his book and in this conversation. In small churches, the way the congregation responds to the need for change is absolutely hugely important. So here are a couple of my takeaways from the conversation. First of all, how often we overlook the emphasis that Jesus and the early church placed on prayer. Even in passages, as we talked about, where the word prayer is there, it's emphasized and might even be the starting word, we often overlook it. Secondly, how important it is to prepare the soil to, to receive a fresh vision on behalf of the congregation. We can't just throw good seed on bad soil, but we try to do that too often. Prayer is the greatest way to help the soil become soft and ready to receive what God wants to do among us. And then my final takeaway is we need to talk about how to help a congregation embrace deep transition and not just surface change. And there's no better way to do that than by starting with prayer. This episode was produced by Veronica Beaver. It was edited by Phil Vaders. 
Original theme music was written and performed by Jack Wilkins of jackwilkinsmusic.com. The graphic design is by Solomon Joy. And me, I'm Carl Vaders, and I hope to talk with you again in the church lobby. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.